This is episode 537 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One reason most Christians fail in their Bible study is the fact that they have seldom, if ever, experienced God through His Word. Oh, don't get me wrong, they believe the Bible is the Word of God, and they believe what it says about itself, like in 2 Timothy 3, that it is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction, and righteousness. In fact, they also understand the purpose of God's Word and believe it wholeheartedly. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Yet their spiritual life and the time they spend in God's Word speak otherwise. Do you know why? It's probably because the promise has a qualifier, and that qualifier means the promise is not for everyone, but only for, according to 2 Timothy 3.17, the man of God. But most believers today are far from what Scripture would consider a man of God. So what do we do? How does that change? What can we do to help hundreds or thousands or maybe millions of believers who have never heard the voice of God do just that, hear the voice of God? I mean, what is the process? What needs to be done? Join us today as we discover how to hear and experience God through his word as we leave Laodicea behind. Uh, We're going to do a a bit of a review. Uh, This is uh, close to the 1st of May. We're going to kind of look at some of the stuff we've talked about over the last maybe year, year and a half, because I want to give you a picture of the direction we're going, the purpose and the logic behind all of this. If you remember, we started out spending quite a bit of time looking at the prophetic um, implications of COVID-19, of Um, the lockdowns of just some of the persecution that's taking place, some of the things that are going on in our nation. We spent some time in the Olivet Discourse with Jesus, realizing that the primary indication of his return would be the proliferation of deception. And since deception, Jesus said several times in that passage, do not be deceived, and the deception will be so great, if it was possible, even the elect would be deceived, that we decided that what we needed to do was focus on our ability to be able to hear from God and not be deceived. And so therefore, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, what his ministry is today, trying to personalize or become more comfortable with the third person of the Trinity, the oddest person of the Trinity, the one that is hardest for most Christians to wrap their mind around, but the one who lives in you, the one who empowers you, and the one that gives you gifts. Seeing um, that in time scenarios are beginning to play out, we then talked quite a bit about being a faith prepper, not necessarily a prepper of physical things, but a faith prepper, to have the kind of faith to persevere when bad things happen, when a deception hits, when you're unable to have the freedom maybe to do some of the things that you're doing right now. We then move from a faith prepper. In order to be a faith prepper, we talked about the higher Christian life, borrowing that phrase from the Keswick movement of the last century, uh, where they talked about having this 
elevated intimacy with the Lord is really just a communion with the Holy Spirit, what it means and how to go about having an intimate relationship with the Lord, how to hear him speak to you, how to be able to communicate through the word. And then when we begin thinking about the word, we started talking about how to not just read scripture, but how to experience it. And we spent quite a bit of time talking about using a what uh, Oswald Chambers calls your godly imagination, to be able to picture in your mind the events that are taking place in Scripture so there's more than one sense involved. For example, when, um, when Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat and there's this terrible storm taking place and it's dark and the disciples wake him up and they say, hey, save us lest we perish. If you think about that, what if I was on that boat myself? What if I was witnessing what was going on? How would I feel? What would I, what, what, would I feel the, the waves that were hitting? And, you know, it's dark outside. There's no lights. And all I've got on the boat is maybe a lantern in the front or the back. How much could I see? And to be able to experience Scripture in a way that you'll never, ever read a passage again once you've been able to get inside of it and be able to let the Lord use other senses just than his reading words to, uh, to make it come real to you. Recently, we looked at the book of Acts, and we started talking about how the early church persevered under persecution. And if you remember, it was an external, then internal, external, then internal, external, then internal persecution. And every time persecution took place, the church got tighter, the church got stronger, more people got saved, they became more committed, which is what we will hope will happen to the church today when it suffers persecution. But we tried to learn from them in the book of Acts. Today, we're going to begin the process of bringing this to a close. And we're going to be dealing with probably the most important topic that we can, and that's how, how to have God reveal himself to you. When I, um, when I first went to seminary and I first started pastoring, what they taught us was that the best type of sermons to preach are expository sermons, which I still do, where you basically take a book of the Bible like Romans, you begin in Romans chapter 1, and you go through the entire 16 chapters of Romans. It takes a year or two years, and you study all the nuances, and you grow from that, and people that listen to that and are part of that just have a deeper appreciation for the Word, and all that is true if times are normal. If we can, everything tomorrow is going to be the same as it is today, then we can take the time to be able to just pick a book of the Bible, Nahum, and just go through that and go, wow, that was great. Look, look what I learned and how God spoke to me during that. But over the last couple of years, if you've noticed, we haven't taken a single book and gone through that. We're doing that on Tuesday night, but not on Sunday, because the need right now for the church is far greater and far more intense then at any time I remember in my lifetime, and I've been in church in utero, and we're facing unprecedented times. And what I want to show you today is the importance and the, and again, we're just going to very, just touch on this a little bit, the importance of you taking personal ownership and personal responsibility for your own spiritual life. You becoming what we phrased a small-time pastor. Big-time pastors are the 
guys that pastors the church and makes a living doing that and maybe has you know, a bunch of people and he presents messages. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about a vocation as a pastor. We're talking about the one time in Scripture that the word pastor is used, and it means to be a shepherd, for you to be able to shepherd your family, be able to shepherd your friends. You know, if you're a man here, does your wife come to you and ask you to explain Scripture to her? Or does she get it on her own somewhere else? Your children, do you raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Do you have men that you're discipling? Because, you know, that seems important. I don't know how to do that. I I don't know how to have God speak to me. I don't know how to study his word. I definitely don't know how to communicate it to other people. And what we have done in our culture, matter of fact, in my entire lifetime, is we have paid hired holy men to do the heavy lifting for us. We want them to hear from God. We want them to understand God's word. Then we want them to present it to us. So instead of getting the pure milk of the word, which they get, we get like a homogenized skim, 2% version of it. And then we go home still not knowing the skills or having the desire to become all that God wants us to be, which is emissaries of him. And so we're going to begin the process today of um, teaching you, I think, one of the most important aspects of our spiritual life and how to hear from God and how to be able to communicate that to the people he places in our, uh, in our midst. If you remember, when Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, he told them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we went over that quite a few times, that, uh, that you will wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, which he already has, if you know Christ, that you will be transformed and changed into something else. Not a worshiper, not a singer, not a really good godly businessman, not the best father or mother in the world, as good as those things are. But you will become witnesses to him. You'll become people that will proclaim his testimony and his goodness and the character of his nature to a lost and dying world. And so what we have done is we've relegated that task to a small segment of Christianity, and we've assumed the Holy Spirit has come for other reasons that are less intimidating to us. But what he wants is for us to become emissaries of him, to be able to teach and proclaim and disciple and minister and counsel and love and show mercy to a lost and dying world in his name, empowered by his spirit. And the best way for us to do that is to understand the times in which we live and the importance of doing this. Now, um, I'm not showing this to you right now. We're not going to be preaching on it and make a big deal about it. But I need you to see one last time where we are in prophetic history. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse number 18, we have this kind of scary phrase where it talks about the wrath of God, that God is getting ready to pour his wrath out on people who have rejected him who have maligned him. He's pouring them out on a people group. He's pouring them out on a nation. He's pouring them out on a culture. And as you go through, beginning in verse 18 to the end of this chapter, you will find that there are three phases to God's judgment. 
And every one of those phases begins with the phrase, God gave them over, or God gave them up. Or in other words, God allowed them the freedom to experience the consequences of their own sin. This is what you want. This is what I've been offering you. You have rejected me, so therefore I'm going to let you experience. I'm going to give you over or give you up to whatever you're asking for. Let me show you how this works out. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And then he goes on to talk about even in creation, God is revealed. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes were clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, this is gnosko, this is to know him by experience, to intimately know him. Because, of, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, choosing not to do that, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and in their foolish hearts were dark and professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Okay. Whoa, I got that, but where do we go? Well, it's really simple. Verse 24 says, therefore, based on all of this, God is about to do something. And he is about to, in three phases, bring his wrath on a people. And the first way he does that, we find out in our life, is through a sexual revolution. Sexual revolution in our nation really began about the late 50s and early 60s. Free love, the dropout, the, um, the um, introduction of rock and roll, all the old fundamental pastors when I was a kid would preach about the rock and roll will be the death of this generation. And we laughed at them, and they were absolutely right. And all of a sudden, everything changed. You know, in, in movies, for example, that, uh, you know, there were certain things that you could and couldn't do. A man and a woman on primetime television, I mean, Ricky and Lucy slept in separate beds. You know, that's just the way it was. And, and all of a sudden, if you, for those of you that remember it or at least have read about it, all of a sudden, Gone with the Wind came. And Brett Butler said this four-letter word. And the people were aghast. Oh, my gosh, it's been open now. The floodgates are open. And what's going to happen here? And then, then uh, you had this nudity that was introduced into movies and had a movie called Myra Breckenridge. It was the first movie back in 1971 that came out in, from Hollywood that was an X-rated movie. And, and nobody cared anymore. And now there's porn on your phones and, and on television. And you can't even watch a show on television that doesn't have some sort of sexual, immoral kind of twist to it. And in just in one generation, everything changed. Sex no longer became something that was a man and a woman expressing their love for each other in the, in the approval and the confines of marriage. Instead, it's like a recreational sport. And if you haven't lost your virginity by the time you're 14 or 15, what's wrong with you? And it's horrific, the things that are going on right now. Look at the first judgment was here. Therefore, because this is what they wanted and wanted to worship the creature, 
the creation, their bodies more than God, God also gave them up to uncleanliness. Well, God, can you define that uncleanliness? Sure. It's the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. This is man and woman. This is sexual revolution, not homosexuality. Primarily, it's a sexual revolution who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what the Bible says. It's just what we do. Divorce became rampant. Affairs took place all the time. It was premarital sex. And I mean, I grew up in that entire generation when all that was happening. The word of God seemed powerless. The church seemed powerless against that. And we find out it's because God has said, if that's what you want, then that's what you'll get to experience the consequences of your sins. Okay. So that began in the late 50s, early 60s, really kicked up in the 70s. Now we don't even think about a sexual revolution because everything imaginable is permissible and actually encouraged in our culture right now. I mean, there's a push out there to legalize pedophilia. And nobody, even the church, isn't standing up saying how horrific that is. So what happens after that? Well, man's heart becomes even harder. And phase two of God's judgment begins. And that is homosexuality. I'm shocked how quickly something that was so taboo all of a sudden became so mainline. Um, you know, I remember Freddie Mercury, you know, dies of AIDS, and Rock Hudson died of AIDS, and all of a sudden, wow, really? I had no idea he was a homosexual, and you don't even talk about that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden, it became prideful to come out, and now there's, you know, holidays and flags and everything that celebrate this this homosexual kind of union. And if you'll go on television now, you'll find the, the people, the characters that are the neatest and the coolest and the most, I don't know, attractive are the ones that are very male characters, very feminine in nature. Maddie, um, Maddie spent uh, yesterday with us and she was on a YouTube channel that uh, she watches and it was just some guy acting as a whole bunch of different characters, making little funny jokes. I don't even know the name of it, you know, and, and Karen and I are looking at it with different eyes. And it's like, but every character in that is incredibly feminine. And the guy's dressed up like a woman most of the time, not to say this is who I am, but to make it culturally acceptable for men not to be men, for men to be women and feminine. And all. where's John Wayne when you need him? Look what this happens. Verses that follow. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. First, it's uncleanliness, and now it's vile, disgusting passions. Well, what passions are those? Can you define them for us? Sure. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. I mean, it's, it's bad enough for the men, but it's actually the women now are involved in lesbianism, and likewise the men also, leaving the natural use of the woman burned, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error that which was due. I can read this passage, and we can lose our tax-exempt status as a church, because this is considered hate speech now. And all this happened over the last 20 years. All right, so, I mean, I can see it. You can see it. These judgments of God coming. 
And then all of a sudden, there's this last one where we've gone from the sexual sins, the sexual promiscuity to homosexuality to this sort of perverted, depraved, debased sort of thinking where a woman isn't really a woman and a Supreme Court uh, judge in her confirmation hearing, when they ask her to define what a woman is and she's a woman, she can't. Well, I, I can't say what a woman is. Well, why not? Well, I, I'm not a biologist. Well, what would a biologist say? Well, I, I don't really know. I really want to get into that because everybody disagrees on what a woman is. I mean, a woman can be whatever you want them to be. It doesn't matter the chromosomes that you have. It doesn't matter whether you can bear children or not. It doesn't matter your anatomy or how you were born. It's basically based on what you think, what you decide you want to be. And you know what? If you self, I read an article about this. If you self-identify as a cat, then in the school systems today, you're allowed to curl up next to the teacher's desk and purr all during school, and they can't say anything about it. Now, we laugh at that, but there's something mentally wrong here, is it not? People lie from, you know, from the media and from the highest offices, and nobody even cares anymore. It's amazing how the mentality of an entire culture has been twisted in such a way that a man who's ranked 447th as a swimmer, a college swimmer as a man, decides to become a woman by saying, hey, I'm a woman now, and now they win everything, and you know he wins everything, and then the other women who have tried really hard are going, wait, 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 Where's, what about women's rights? I mean, how about me? I mean, I worked really hard for this, and now all of a sudden a transgender has more rights than I do. What's wrong with our thinking? It's part of God's judgment, and this began five years ago. This is how quickly God's judgment is coming. Here's the passage. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased, perverted, ridiculous, uh, depraved mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. And then he goes on to list these words that just describe the perversity of this culture, the perversity we're seeing right now that is only going to get worse. Sexual immorality and wickedness, covetedness, maliciousness. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit. There are, there are actual um, laws that are being introduced in some state legislatures, very liberal state legislatures, that will decriminalize the killing of a child, not up until birth, but even a week to 10 days after birth if the parents decide they don't want the baby. And nobody says anything about it. And that just seems reasonable to me. I mean, because my mind is so twisted and messed up with stuff like that. They're evil-minded. They're whisperers. They will destroy your credibility and lie, even from the three-letter institutions that are supposed to protect our freedom. They will lie to push their agenda. They're backbiters, haters of God. Violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents, and then all the unwords, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, 
but also approve of those who practice them. I belong to a couple groups that sends uh, snippets of sermons that uh, people preach um, several times a week, and you'd be shocked at what is masquerading as uh, Christianity today. Uh, do you know why um, Joseph got a coat of many colors? Yes, he's transgender. Absolutely. And so we're pushing the transgender thing. That's what's one of the reasons why Daniel, of course, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wore fine clothes, because they were transgender. Then when Lazarus came out of the tomb, and he was told to take off his grave clothes, do you know that that was, that was Jesus calling Lazarus to come out and expose himself for what he truly is, a transgender man, and Jesus accepted him for who he is? And this is stuff that is preached in churches and nobody does anything about it. It's like when you go over to the dark side, you never come back. And churches are doing that and capitulating all the time. Because this is who, where we are right now. This is, this is where our culture is at. And so the most important thing we can do is to be able to understand how to hear from God, understand what his word says, and be able to have an experience with him that will become a bedrock of our faith, not just a mental ascent, but to understand and know him, gnosko. Because after all, Jesus said that the predominant sign of his coming will be deception, horrific deception, deception so great, as I shared with you earlier, that even the elect would be deceived it was possible. So right now, it is vital for us, vital for his church, to know how to discern truth from deception in these final days. And I can't do it for you. No one can do it for you. You must take responsibility and ownership of your own spiritual life to do it yourself. You've got to know because, and you can't, you can't be, you know, seeing is believing. No, seeing, you, you can be manipulated. M you know, magic and trickery and card tricks uh, are designed to make you think you see something, then you don't. You can't trust your heart. The Bible says your heart is deceitfully wicked above everything. So there has to be some sort of finite truth that we have to learn to accept. And that comes from his word. That comes from what we know about him. So that's the need for what we're going to be doing. And the next thing I want to share with you, and I'm basically just asking a lot of questions, is the spiritual aspect of what it means to hear from God. My experience has been, for pastoring for 30-something years, is that most people I talk to have either never heard from God, never, or if they have, it's been once or twice in their life a long time ago. It was just some crisis that was going on, and they prayed, and, and God spoke to them. Well, how, how did he speak to you? I don't know. I just I felt this peace. Oh, like a Mormon when you hear the Mormon message and have this burning in your soul, and somehow that kind of confirms oh, this peace. Or, or I don't know, maybe circumstances worked out or, or something of that nature. Has God clearly revealed himself to you? Has he spoken to you? Are you sure of who he is? And so what we're going to do, probably not much more than that today. And um, let me tell you my plan here. Um, this is the longest slide presentation I've ever made. There's 350-something slides here. There's no 
possible way I even intend to share it with you. I'm basically going to be sharing some truth, and then this week I'm going to be sending you an email where I'll give you the rest of this. I'll, uh, I'll record a podcast that you can listen to and uh, do some research on it yourself so that we can become Bereans and be able to understand God's word. But I want to introduce the topic to you, talk about a particular truth of this, how to understand God and hear from him every week, and then during the week give you as much biblical support as you can probably uh, want to get so you can search it yourself and become firmly convinced that this is real that it's real for you, that it can happen and it should happen as a child of God. And that's what I'm talking about here. I present some truths on Sunday, and then I'm going to share some stuff with you um, afterwards. And why? Why are we doing this? Why are we going to take the Sunday sermon and split it up for Sunday and during the week? And it's simply because I can't rely on John MacArthur to do the Bible study for me and read his commentaries and go, okay, that's what it means, and rock on. My faith doesn't grow with that. And my faith is not based in words. The word that my faith is based in John MacArthur or whomever else you want to look at. I've got to know what God's word says. I've got to experience it. I've got to have an encounter with it. God has got to speak to me because it's my responsibility to grow. Because if I'm not, if I'm not maturing in my faith, how can I teach my wife or my children to do that too? I can only lead to where I've been. I can ask my kids to follow me where I've already been. If I haven't been there, then I'm like a, like a, uh, cowboy herding cattle. I'm just pointing people to some place that I've never experienced, and it doesn't work that way. It's the idea of being a small-time shepherd, a small-time pastor who goes ahead of the flock, protecting the flock. And plus, the purpose of this is to help us become Bereans. Um, Chuck Missler is the one that really drove this verse home to me and to um, my kids. It's like the byline of his ministry, uh, Koinonia House, and he basically says this. He says that those, and this is talking about those in Berea, were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Paul would go and preach the gospel in Thessalonica and preach the gospel in Berea. But in Berea, they received the word with all readiness, but they searched the scriptures every single day. They took time to make sure that everything Paul was saying to them was true. People in Thessalonica may have accepted it based on the charisma or the presentation of Paul, but the people in Berea knew it was true because they looked at the Bible daily. Well, here's what Paul is saying. I wonder if that's true. I'll go back and I'll look in this book and that book, and they'll come to a conclusion themselves. And then it's something that they, it's their conviction rather than just some cleverly devised message that they heard from a very talented proclaimer which is why it's so important for us to learn these skills and become a small-time pastor. So I'm going to ask some questions, and I want you to seriously, in your own heart, we're not taking a test, you don't have to share it, seriously think about what your answer would be to these. Um, in our laps, most of us in here, we have Bibles. You know, what, what is this book that we have, Literally. We're blessed to have multiple copies of this everywhere and uh, all these different translations. And, you know, what is it really? Well, uh, it's the Word of God. Well, okay, well, what does that mean? I don't know. 
I don't know. I just, I've always been told it's the word of God, and so I assume it's the word of God. Well, is it the word of God that you're holding in your hand right now? Or is that just part of the word of God? Or does that just contain the word of God? I mean, what is it? Oh, well, it's the word of God based on the original Greek, which nobody has anymore. And all we have is a translation, which means what? It's less than the word of God? Or, I mean, what do you mean? How much authority do we give it? And when you think about it, um, this book has been under constant attack, especially over the last 150 years, uh, attacking the, incredi- the uh, uh, integrity of his book and the sufficiency of his book, and it does it in such subtle ways. We've talked about this in the past. In the very beginning, there was pretty much one translation, and it was our one source document for the translation. It was the Texas Respectus. It was the received text. It was what, for example, the King James Bible was translated on, and most all the other Bibles, uh, Jerome's Vulgate, stuff of that nature were translated on. And, and so that was okay until all of a sudden they found these other copies of Scripture in Alexandrian text, for example. And uh, then they decided that, man, we could, have, uh, we could have newer translations now. Everybody's tired of the King James, and so you know we can update it to a new King James, but we could have all these newer translations. We could make money on this. I mean, well, you can't translate, if it's, if it's a King James, what are you going to do, just put a new cover on No, no, no. This is a whole new Bible translation. It comes from a, a different source, and so therefore we'll have the NASB and the NIV and the ESV and, and all these current translations. We'll spit one out about every 12 to 15 years. Everybody will buy all these newer translations because this will be the latest, greatest thing, and then what we're going to do and all the footnotes in all the Bibles, including the King James and the New King James, we're going to assume that the new source document for the translations is accurate and everything else is not. 1,850 years, uh, you know, that those translations were wrong because the newer translations are the ones that are most important. And therefore, we're going to put notes in your Bible. Like in the book of Mark, we're going to put a little note at the bottom that says, uh, the last 16 verses of the book of Mark are not found in the most recent and best manuscripts. But what does that mean? It means just dump it. It shouldn't even be in there. I mean, somebody has decided that that isn't, uh, isn't part of God's word anymore. And then we go through and we notice in the newer translations, when every time there was an opportunity in the received text to glorify God or Christ as God, those things are removed in the newer text. There's, those, those words are admitted. It doesn't say of God or doesn't say of the Lord in this particular passage. And you go through your Bible and there are hundreds of those in, uh, in your scripture. We don't even notice anymore really doesn't matter. Well, what kind of Bible do you read? Well, I, I like the ESV. Why? I don't know. It's just easier to read. It's not about whether it's easier to read. It's about whether or not it's an accurate translation. You know, but we don't talk about that. Major pastors try to use the easiest Bible that they can to get their congregations to read it because we're dumbing down the spiritual IQ and understanding of our congregation. The NIV which was the hottest Bible 20, 30 years ago, is on, written on a ninth grade level. A ninth grade level. There are incredible amount of attacks that are going on, and they're very subtle. And if you're not careful, it's going to turn your Bible into a book for advice rather than God's inerrant word. I'm going to go to my Bible to give me some guidance on a decision I need to make. But as far as being the final authority, it, it, 
doesn't work that way. Whole history of this. We'll talk about it another time. Question is this. It's a book you have in your lap right now. Is it the Word of God, or does it contain the Word of God? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Well, that's really simple. I mean, is it all inspired or just partly inspired? And if it's all inspired, then, you know, that, that's one thing. But if it's partly inspired, then you get to pick and choose what you want. Well, my name is um, Gloria Simpson. And I'm pastor of the United Methodist, First United Methodist Church here, and I've uh, been pastor for a long time. Question, Gloria, if you don't mind me asking. Um, in my Bible, it talks about the fact that, you know, to be a pastor, you have to be the husband of one wife. I guess you can do that now if you self-identify as a man. But be the husband of one wife, and, you know, uh, it's, it's obviously a, a male position, yet you have assumed that position as a woman. I was just wondering not to be judgmental, but I was just wondering how you equate that with Scripture. Oh, well, that's really not what it says and not what it means, because that was just Paul's prejudice in that. So the Bible that you have in your hand obviously contains the Word of God, and what you disagree with is not the Word of God, but what you agree with is the Word of God, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely deals with every other controversial issue that you want to deal with. Abortion. What's a Christian position on abortion? Well, you know, if it's rape or incest, then I guess God's okay with that. So, so it is the Word of God, just contains the Word of God. Homosexuality or, or all those other controversial issues. I mean, what do you think? Is it the Word of God? Or does it contain the Word of God? And if it is the Word of God, how important is it in your life? If, if you really believed that God dictated or used the, the minds and the skills and the vocabulary of the people he inspired, the 40 different authors, to write his word to us, which, by the way, you don't go to a library and find books that talk about all the errors in the Bible because there aren't any. It's all put together, and he handed it to you, persevered after all these years. People burned at the stake for translating into a language that people can understand. If you really believe that this book is God's word, how much time do you spend reading it and studying it? I mean, if I could communicate with God by reading this, why would I not do that all the time? I would never make a bad decision because I would never make a decision. I would ask God to make it for me. If I needed encouragement, God can speak to me, but, but we don't do that. We say we believe it's God's word, and then we relegate it to some back shelf in our life and only draw on it when we have to. Why is that? I mean, if you had a, I don't know, um, an ability to send God a text message and God would respond, how often would you do that? Hey, uh, Lord, I'm really struggling with something right now. I need to know what you need me to do. And, you know, and boom, here's the message. Oh, thanks, God. And, you know, something of that nature. If we really believed and have really experienced God speaking to us through his word that way, I mean, we would, we would we'd have it memorized. We would clamor over it. We would be scholars in his word. We would experience every word on every page, especially when you get to be as old as I am. Yet we obviously haven't experienced it. We obviously don't believe it other than just intellectually because our actions don't line up 
with what we say it should. All right, so let's cut to the chase. Steve, what's the final authority in your life? Um, me. Me. You know what the final authority in your life is? Probably you. You know, uh, Scripture tells us it should be him. And when we're in church, we always talk about that. Well, it's, it's, really, it's really God, but it's not. It's, it's usually him or it's usually us. And if we say it's him, the next question would be, okay, so if God is the final authority in your life, how do you figure out what he wants you to do when you're faced with a certain dilemma? In other words, I, I have a decision to make. I'm, I'm getting ready to lose my job, or I've got the calamity in my family, or something's got to, should I move or should I stay? God, I need some direction. I, I need to figure out what, what I need to do. I've done my little T formula. I've done my pros and cons. But God, I need to hear from you on this. And if you're the final authority in my life, how does he speak to you? How does he communicate that to you? I mean, does he, does the scripture pop out or, or, I mean, how does that work? How does he give you encouragement? How does he give you instruction? The way he's chosen to do that is through this word, amplified and imparted to us by his spirit. So the question would be, you know, um, do I take his word as the final authority? Or do I basically take his word as just like a Dear Abby kind of column where I, you know, I'm struggling with this God and I know what your word says. Let me read this for some inspiration and now I feel a little better about my decision. And by the way, have you ever, have you ever thought that you heard from God and realized you were wrong? Man, what did that do to your confidence when it comes to hearing from God? I ain't ever going to do that again. Gonna have to just make all the decisions myself. I'm gonna ask him to season my life. Again, what is the final authority of our life? And if you ask most Christians and you said, how's that working out for you? Most Christians are going from one crisis to another. I mean, I am. I've, I've got this, I've got this scar on my forehead where I had 93 stitches because I kept trying to beat my head against doors God wasn't ready to open. Actually, that's not really how that happened, but I do have 93 stitches. But, you know, it's like, I keep wanting to handle it my way, God. It's my choice, God. After all, I've got a bumper sticker on my car that says, you're my co-pilot. Remember that? You're my co-pilot. I'm calling all the shots here. Okay. Well, Steve, um, has God ever revealed himself to you in a life-changing way like he did to others in the Bible? Think, has he? I mean, you ever get one of those aha moments, one of those life-changing moments, like Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, where he's just wandering around, sees this bush, looks at it, all of a sudden hears the voice of God. This is holy ground, and he has this encounter with God that defined the rest of his life. Has God ever spoken to you that way? Or Joshua getting ready to, to go up against Jericho, and he meets this angel of the Lord, probably Christophany, the Lord Jesus Christ there, and, and then the Lord gives him instructions on some ridiculous way to destroy this city, to walk around it for seven days and blow a trumpet. Do you remember? Life was changed for him at that time. Well, my favorite story. Elijah wants an encounter with the Lord. He just had the Mount Carmel experience. Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. And so he gets afraid, runs 26 miles to Jezreel, wants to die. Just take me away, God. So God moves him out to the front of the cave and passes by him in a quiet whisper. Changes his whole life completely. God, ever done that to you through his word? You ever had that kind of experience? Or Paul on a Damascus road. 
or John in Revelation chapter 1 on the Lord's day, and all of a sudden he hears this sound, and he turns around, and there is Christ. You think he can even do that? Do you think he wants to do that? Does God still speak to people through his word as he did in the past? And if so, is he speaking to you? And if not, why? Is it him? He only speaks to people that have seminary degrees. Or is it you that we don't expect it, we don't look for, we, we don't really care? Anytime, anytime God speaks to us, it's life-changing. You realize that, don't you? Anytime the God of the universe chooses to communicate a message to one of his creations, to you or me, it changes everything. It fills us with stuff that we can't even imagine. It overwhelms us with his goodness. So the question is, when you read his word, are you just reading it? Or has the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit in you allowed you to experience it? To read it and just be overwhelmed. You know, um, a new, I don't know if they call it miniseries anymore, a new Amazon comes out with a new miniseries, 10-episode deal. So you watch the first one, and you're hooked. And you can't wait till the next one comes out, and you binge-watch the next three. And then the next one's not listed till next week, and you can't wait to watch it. You're so fired up about what's going to happen. I just can't wait because there's always these cliffhangers at the end, and it's just the most incredible thing ever. You want to tell all your friends about it? Has it ever been that way with God's Word? Ever. Man, I'm just reading this, and Karen was telling me today that she's reading Lamentations. Encouraging book, is it not? Lamentations. You know, this is Jeremiah weeping, weeping, and then proclaiming, and weeping, and proclaiming. She says it's amazing. You know, just what's there, getting behind the story, understanding the plight that's going on, experiencing something like Lamentations. And God wants to do incredible things with us. And if you have experienced his word, do you remember what it was like? And does it happen often? Does it happen every time you open up his word? Or, or how long has it been? Is it something that every time I open God's word, bam, he's there? Or I remember when God spoke to me, I think it was like, I think it was like in April of 2018. And prior to that, it was like in 2014, but hasn't really come to me or hadn't really experienced anything like that. I still do my Bible reading, but as far as encounter with him, no. You know, um, if we haven't, there's so much more here that... uh, that's waiting for us. But the question is, are you willing to pay the cost? You know, I have, uh, I have two daughters that went to um, nursing school. And uh, when you go to nursing school, you buy a textbook that costs $125 for one textbook. Isn't that crazy? $125. Bucks. And, man, well, why are you paying that? Well, I have to. Well, why? Well, because I want to pass the course. I was $125 for the book, and yeah, I'm, I'm reading it, I'm underlining it, and I'm, I'm making sure I pass off the test and all this kind of stuff. Anything that you and I want to do takes time and effort and money. I mean, there's a sacrifice involved in it. You want to go to school and be a lawyer, it's going to cost thousands and thousands of dollars. A doctor, hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you want to start a business like, like Justice did with filmmaking, you've got to buy cameras and this and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it costs money to do something like that. And we don't mind spending money on everything other 
than when it comes to our spiritual life. Because we think in church, everything's free. Everything should be given to us for free. So we're paying somebody else to do all the heavy lifting. He tells us about it. We agree or disagree. We write down notes. We don't. We carry our Bible. We don't have to. It doesn't matter. And we move on. And we miss the opportunity of learning it ourselves. It's going to take time. It's going to take you know, turning television off, quit playing stupid video games or being on Facebook all the time and take time to be able to experience God in a way that will change your life. I mean, what would it take for you to honestly say like Paul, we have the mind of Christ? Or to honestly say, you know what? I have a desire to become a man after God's own heart, to do the things that God would do, to feel what God feels, to be impassioned by the things God is impassioned with. If you believe it's his word, and if you believe that um, it can change you, then you have to have faith in his word. And when you're faced with a decision, if I have faith in God's word, I mean, where do I go? Well, um, I asked my friends and my neighbors what I should do. I've been given this promotion at work, and it's going to be a lot more money, but I'm going to have to work second shift versus, versus first shift. And, you know, I'll be, I'll be unable to put my kids to bed at night, but you know what? I'll be able to, you know, pay the bills that we need to and buy some of the stuff, be a better provider for the kids. I just don't know what to do. I don't know what God's will is. Well, have you asked him? Well, no, not really. I've asked my buddies and my friends. I've asked my wife. I've kind of thought about it. I've looked at all that, trying to make my decision myself. And then I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask God to bless my decision. But if we really believe we're losses of him, that we're bond slaves of him, don't you think he knows what he wants us to do? And if so, how would he reveal that to us? Primarily through his word. It's okay, so... I'm going to seek him. I'm going to read. I'm, I'm going to try to figure out what it is. And, and if so, how long do I wait? How, how much do I read? How deep do I go? How do I know when God has spoken to me? I mean, what do I do? Do I just pray and wait for some sort of feeling? Or do I read his word and wait for him to, to, to jump out at me? The example I gave a long time ago was the fact that you're working um, – you have two job openings. One is with Bank of America in Charlotte, and the other one is with Capital One in McLean, Virginia. And you have a choice. And uh, the, the, the areas are the same. The pay is the same. The school systems are the same. There's really not one differentiating from another. You just have a choice. Which job are you going to take? Well, I don't know. Well, do you think God knows? I do. So what are you going to find out? I'm going to look at his word. There's nowhere in here. There's nowhere in here that I've ever read that will tell you, go to Virginia or stay in Charlotte. It's not. Yet God will reveal that to you through his word, through some kinetic way that he connects his written word with the Holy Spirit in a a way that you'll know for certain this is exactly what his will is. And then you'll have the confidence to move forward. But many times we don't do that. We only give you 15 minutes, God, and I got to make a decision and we're just going to rock on. But if he does speak to you, do you know that he's done that? And how do you know? Well, I'm reading this, and all of a sudden, what, I felt something? Did I feel some sort of, um, I don't know, um, uh, peace? Maybe that's God. I'm just going to go on that. Or I'm looking for some sign. God, if it's really true that that this is what you want me to do, then the next person walks in the door, let him wear a fireman hat. Ah, Must not be your word. I mean, do we do stuff like that? I mean, how do we know for certain? 
And if you decide to move forward thinking you did hear God's word and found out that you didn't, or things got worse, I know this is God's will. I know it's going to work out for me. So I'm going to say yes, because God's behind me. And then you say yes and suffer a consequence from that. You go back and second guess it. Well, that's not the way I thought it would work. If I said yes, then I thought God would open up all the doors. And sometimes he does, but not immediately. And so then all of a sudden, you, you go back on what you wanted to do. Am I basing it all on circumstances rather than him? Have you ever been wrong when it comes to hearing God's word? And if I am wrong, what does that do to my confidence? I knew for certain it was God's will. And then I went and it didn't work out. Well, that doesn't mean it wasn't God's will. It just means it didn't work out what your expectations were. And if all of a sudden it doesn't work that way anymore, do you give up on faith, on God's word anymore? God doesn't speak to us anymore. I can't hear from him. We're done. There's so much we're going to look at. There's so much we're going to get through. And if you will hang with us, and if you will begin to have a desire and believe that, uh, that God wants to speak to you and will speak to you and will communicate with you um, through the Spirit living in you, ratified by his word, you'll find that all the troubles and indecisions that you have in your life will vanish. That's not true. Troubles will not vanish, but your indecisions about what to do will vanish because he'll be there guiding and leading you all the way. So, if we take him at his word, you will find that, that everything will change. As far as I'm going to go today, uh, I'm going to just let you read this first step in understanding that, and we're going to be amplifying that. Um, if you, I'm going to send you an email out probably by Tuesday or Wednesday um, with the teaching and stuff for you to read help you understand that. But I, when you get ready to pray, um, to begin studying God's word, if you're like most Christians, what you are saying is something like this. Lord, um, would you uh, help me understand your word and just help me, um, just help me, help me learn more about you or something of that nature. And your prayer should be something like this, very general and then very specific. General, Lord, would you reveal yourself through the word? That's what you're asking. I want to know you. I want to know your mind, your will. I want to, I want to know you. So would you, would you do that, Lord? And would you help my faith to grow in you and in your word as I read? And then very specific, I'm going to ask you to show me who you are. Show me your nature, your will. Show me your love and acceptance and grace and mercy and forgiveness and faithfulness and patience. Show me everything about you in the very passage or the word are the phrase that I'm looking at right now because I know you can, because your word is God-breathed and inspired, because it's, it's profitable for every area of my life. And Lord, as I'm looking at your word, even if it's just, you know, a proverb or a psalm, in my little devotion time today, Lord, I need you to change me. I need you to bring me a refreshing in myself, I need to be conformed more to the image of your son and no longer be content with just learning something intellectually. Wow, I never knew that. That's really amazing. I should write a term paper on that. It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about encountering the living God himself. And Lord, what I want more than anything is for you to change my life. In this one passage I'm reading, change my life. Let me have an experience with you because all experiences with God are life-changing. 
That's the history of the testimony in Scripture. What I did is I took one passage, and I wanted to do this myself, to share it with you. And I am going to share it this week with you. And I just took the simple passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse um, 16 and 17, just about the word itself. You're very familiar with this one. I've read it and preached on it a dozen times. And all of a sudden, it became alive to me. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction of instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, wow, didn't see that before. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And what I did is I began a process of praying that prayer and asking God to change my life by just this passage. I started asking questions of the passage. I started using our rudimentary tools that we use, such as um, I want to look at the all-inclusive words. All scripture, every good work. Oh, where does pos? It means just what it says, all, without exception. Every bit of scripture, Old and New Testament. Okay, all right. What else? I see these four things here. Doctrine, reproof, corruption, and instruction. Are they haphazardly thrown in there? Are they put in there in order for a reason? And it, it's amazing how they flow together. It's like, it's like, well, here's what you need to do. And if I don't do that, there's a uh, reproof and, then, and, and a correction or discipline and then an instruction. All right, and what am I being instructed in? I'm being instructed in righteousness. Not about anything else in life, just righteousness. So then I ask the why questions. Is there an implied question here that is answered in the passage? And there is. Here's the statement. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Why? Why should I even care? Why is all that done? Well, it's really simple. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Are there any qualifying passages? Are there any conditional passages? Is there anything in this verse that would point to the fact that the promise here is not for everybody, but is just for some? And then you hit this word, man of God. It doesn't say believers. It doesn't say people who embrace Christ. It's a specific phrase that's being used that all scripture is profitable, and it gives the four reasons why, and instruction in righteousness, for a man of God. Is that every Christian? Is every Christian a man of God? Are you a man of God? Am I a man of God? Does the Bible talk about every believer being a man of God? Or is this a subset? And if it's a subset, what in the world is the Lord saying here? So I went through this and just wrote down my thoughts. I, what I do is I'm studying, I'll put an email up, and I'll just write myself an email. Um, and um, it's amazing. And I'm going to share this with you this week, hopefully that we can do it together, and that as we look at some other passages, that um, um, I'll share one last thing and I'll quit. So I'm, I'm looking at these truths, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. Well, Lord, how are those appropriated into my life? How are those, how do those things equip a man of God to be complete? I mean, how is that? It's all done by faith. No, just faith. Well, Lord, what do I need to learn about faith? There's the Hebrew passage we've already looked at, and, and all of a sudden, he just directed me to, 
Um, Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing. Do you remember? And hearing by the word of God. Okay. And all of a sudden you begin looking at that passage the same way and everything begins to change. You know, um, like for example, the word comes is not even in the original. It's faith, hearing, and hearing through or by the word of God. I mean, it's a huge affirmation. And in the context of that passage, faith is dealing with salvation faith. But it also deals with sanctification faith, the faith that we're uh, longing for right now. Unbelievable passage. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to go through a process um, on Sunday and during the week where I'm hoping that you will take a passage, uh, learn some of these skills, begin to to try to understand God in a more profound way, to have him speak to you in a life-changing way, and then share that here, what God has done for you, and see if he doesn't increase the spiritual fervency in our lives, in our family, in our church exponentially. Amen? So I'm asking you just to join with me on this adventure. Let me pray.